All right, the gifts just keep coming in. Uh, more and more gifts. I got paperwork about that thick. That awesome paperwork that's been given to me. The generous spirit of Alan Tracy, of all the people who organized and put this on. Um, there's no words for that because you don't know what a magnanimous gift it is to especially ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to receive these things to study. Just as a result of last night and the messages I heard, I already know I have enough, enough fodder to preach for at least 15 years, okay? Uh, just 15 years. And I, uh, my whole entire perspective has changed too much, so much. When I ran across passages of Scripture about hope, sometimes I couldn't clearly see what the hope was. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I didn't, I didn't see a good, clear picture of what that hope was. But I see it now in the perspective of time. And it makes a huge difference from that perspective whenever you look at it. So uh, look forward to some messages maybe in the, in the years to come on some of the things that spawn from Brother Allen's generosity and giving so much uh, literary, literary um, fodder for us to read and, and to take in and to consider. It's just not, I'm already looking at it. Uh, and seeing what I can see from perspective. Um, and so I'll be looking at those things in the future. I also want to thank the generosity in food. And, you know, not only the spiritual food through the reading that you're giving me, but also the food that you're feeding me, uh, which is always a big plus for me. Uh, um, if there's one thing that uh, I have little self-control over, it's, it's eating but through diabetes, I've had to learn that. God has put me in a place where I'm going to have to learn how to control what I eat or elsewise I'm going to be in, in big trouble. So just putting this on, uh, allowing this event to happen. Uh, another thing is, is, you know, we go back to our churches and we preach and we preach and we preach and we preach and we preach. And, we preach and it, it's just like getting a... Getting a uh, uh, it's like we start with a tank of gasoline and it dwindles down and pretty soon you can see the red, the, the needle on the red and you're on E and you need some regeneration or you need some fuel. And so coming to a conference like this allows me to hear other men of God speak and do so much uh, to help fill the tank back up so that you can go back to your home church and, and do a whole lot more and try to do the best that you can by the people that you minister to. So anyway, just my, my heartfelt thanks to everybody who does something here. You're all part of a body. You all work together. And I really appreciate the gifts that you bestow upon us and the gift of literature, the gift of, of eating food, the gift of love, the gift of uh, having the tank full. These are just a few of the things that I can think of right off the bat. And then meeting new people that I've never met before and talking with them and uh, getting to hear some some uh, tales of the faith, as, as you might want to call it, uh, is always very encouraging to me. So I like it so much. All right, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go to the next age or the next phase. It's, I don't want to call it an age, maybe a dispensation. Now, I, and by the way, I'm not well taught in dispensation. I told you all two years ago when I came here that I'm the kindergarten teacher, okay? If you want grown boy preaching, John Swigert is right there. Where's, where's our other brother? Brother James over here. He's right there. That's the big boy. They preach the good stuff. And so, and I've been so blessed by it. I really, I'm really blessed in this conference. If you want to see 
the pattern of everything and it's it's in the way a little bit because I can't see my Bible and so I'm moving it out of the way if you want to see some fantastic pictures that God put in play then I'm the guy you want to see because there are things I can show you and parallels that I can show you between passages of scripture that uh, you've probably never seen before and some of you probably have those who are well studied in the word of God those who have attended a long time in reading scripture you know some of the things I'm already saying before I say it because you've seen it you've seen the parallels and so we looked at the book of Genesis which I call God's primer it's his alphabet so to speak not only is it's alphabet but in it contains everything you need to know about the ages I'm saying that he wrote it down to where you can see it and so we looked at the we looked at the two covenants that he was going to evoke and we we saw that through Cain and Abel we saw that through Ishmael and Isaac we saw that through Jacob and Esau we saw that through Joseph and his brethren we could see it through Manasseh and Ephraim we could also see it through uh, Leah and Rachel that God wanted to tell you in advance everything he was going to do and so he used Genesis in order to set you up for what was about to come now the real age started whenever uh, God dealt with the children of Israel as they were bound to the Egyptians and God pulled them out the exodus and the exodus in that period of time um, by the way if you want to look at this uh, Genesis is where God tells you everything he's about to do uh, Exodus Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy would parallel the life of Christ. It took four books in the Old Testament to do what Christ could do also in four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you can look at those Gospels. But it took him far less time. The children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus fasted only 40 days and 40 nights. So Jesus kind of condensed everything down and made it uh, more finite because he already was on his A-game when he came here. And he fulfilled things a lot faster than the children of Israel did. And now we come to the conquest. The conquest in the book of Joshua. So I need for you, if you can, if you have dual markers, I want you to put one marker in Joshua at the very front. And I want you to put one in the book of Acts. Because the parallel to the book of Joshua is the book of Acts in the New Testament. The ages, we just said Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, those things are contained within... Uh, of course, um, the same thing as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this begins, of course, with a commission. And we want to look at both commissions because there are two commissions. One, a very condensed version. This one may be a little bit longer. And so, God begins to talk to Joshua about what he's supposed to do. And so before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and your many wonderful blessings. Lord, I pray that you would bless the people with your word, your word that was ever so wise, the word that you thought of well in advance before the first word was in. Lord, we thank you for the way you did it and the mysteries that you hid therein, some of which we still not do not know to this day. So, Father, I pray that you would help to uh, be a comfort to the people and help them understand even by looking at the word of god and how some people say the word of god differs so much i don't know uh, how people can see anything in it but lord the organization of it is unparalleled in any work in any book ever in the history of time and so father i pray that you would give them a glimpse of that and see the foreknowledge that you had and how you pinned it out 
and will not forget to give you praise, honor, and glory for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Moses is now dead. Up to the top of the mount he went. Burial place disputed even by Satan himself. Nobody knows what happens to him, and I'll get to a piece of that here in just a minute. Uh, but here, after Moses is dead, God has already commissioned Joshua, and why not? Who spent more time at the tabernacle than Moses? That was Joshua. Joshua spent more time outside the camp than anyone else. And let's talk about being outside the camp. That was the place where God chose to be. In the very beginning of their, their pilgrimage, and when the last time I was here, I taught on this, God dwelt in the midst of the camp. His tabernacle was pitched in the dead center and everybody camped around about the tabernacle. But then, after the fiasco in the mount when he was trying to give them the law and they disobeyed by creating another God, God said, I don't even want to be in this camp anymore. Put me on the outside. Make, make sure my tabernacle goes out there. And so if you wanted to go to God... In the Israelite camp, you had to leave the camp to go to the outside to even approach unto him. And Jesus also, who suffered without the camp, you know that, that scripture, he, he, made, he made a place and a name for himself, not in the midst of Jerusalem, so to speak, but on the edge of it on Mount Golgotha. So there you see the parallel there. And so Joshua is now in command. And God makes that very clear in verse number two Moses my servant is dead now therefore arise go over this Jordan thou and all this people unto the land which I do give them to the even to the children of Israel every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon that have I given unto you as I said unto Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon even unto the great river the river Euphrates and all the land of the Hittites and unto the great sea toward the going down the sun shall be your coast there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do all according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left. Isn't that a weird saying? Don't turn from the right or the left. Don't turn to it from the right or the left. What's he trying to say? And we see everything in this world on a continuum. I like to call it a bell curve. The peak of what we should be doing is right there in the center of the bell curve. But if you go to the right, it curves down and goes out like this. And then on the left, you start at the peak and then you go down and it curves off to the left. God says don't turn right and don't turn left. And I think the problem, and, and you can see it very clearly in our divided uh, religions across the world, talking about uh, different religions other than believerism or Christianity, so to speak. I'm talking about within our own realm. How many divisions and factions do we have all over the world? How many sisters and brothers sit in a different view from a different viewpoint seeing different things than we do? Each of them might have a little piece of the truth. But in having a little piece of the truth in the way that's preached and presented, there are also lies and poison even among some of the things that are taught and preached upon even to this day. So God says, look, I set the law up for you, Joshua. 
you know what the law is don't deviate to the left or to the right stay the course and understand it the way I've written it okay this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success have I not commanded thee be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. What a strong commission. God is saying, hey, the very strength of my presence is with you. I've given you a commission. I want you to go out and I want you to conquer these nations that live in this land. And I want you to fulfill the promise of Genesis 15 that you gave to Abraham. Saying that when the iniquity of the Amorites, I can't, I can't give you the land until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. Well, now the iniquity of the Amorites is full and God says, okay, now's the time. Go in and conquer. This land is no longer theirs. It's yours. And they've been fighting over this land ever since. If you look at it in the sense and in the news and the way you see Israel right now, they are still fighting over the land. They're still fighting over it. There are still people who think they have a thread of hope that it belongs to them, but there's one piece of real estate in all of the world that doesn't belong to anybody but God and to whomsoever God says belongs to it at the time. And other nations cannot get that through their thick skull. But what's going to happen is one day all the worlds are going to amass together as one. Every nation is going to gather, even the good old U.S. of A. I know how patriotic we all are. I'm patriotic too. But one day this nation will turn its back on Israel. You can already see shades of it in, in the politics that goes on right now. And I'm not saying anything good or bad about anyone. I'm just saying that whenever you depart from Israel and the protection thereof and the praying for the peace of Jerusalem and all those things that God has given us, we're going to be in deep trouble. Why do you think our nation has enjoyed so much prosperity? That's nothing more than the blessing of Abraham. To those that bless you, they're going to be blessed. To those that curse you, they're going to be cursed. And so when the tenor of our intentions toward Israel changes, you're going to notice a change in the quality of your life here in the United States. So just buckle up and be prepared for that because it's inevitable. It will happen. Am I for it? Absolutely not. Are you for it? Shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, but it's going to happen. And I'm not worried about it. It's not causing me to lose any sleep, but I will tell you that the quality of life will change, and I do have grandchildren, and I would like to see them grow up in an age kind of like the one I grew up in, but we're getting so far away from that. We're so far. We're just going so far. So all that's left for me now to do is to teach my grandchildren to walk in the way of the Lord. That's all I have left. You might have to suffer persecution, grandson. They might come and cut your head off. But you stay true to the Lord your God. You follow after him the best you can. And Paul Paul's trying his best to attain the thing the Lord is trying to have him attain. And I want to know that I, I would love to see you there with me and that we can rejoice together with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I feel. But anyway... The conquest has now begun. Now, I told you, try to mark the book of Acts. And so I want you to turn to the commission of the book of Acts. 
We're just going to flip back and forth for a little bit and see some key components of both books to let you know just how the construct of God is, okay? In the Acts of the Apostles in chapter number one, they're all waiting around. Um, and uh, verse number four, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. There's going to be have an intersection with the book of Joshua here in just a minute. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? We've been talking so much about ages this week. Do you understand that the Jewish nation is blinded to Jesus Christ? They're blinded to it. They can't see it. You can preach the gospel for 15,000 years and some of them will never believe because they can't see it. And I had my aha moment in this man's message just a couple of days ago. It was a revelation. It was given to me of God. The blinders were lifted. The scales fell off my eyes. That was an act of God. Any act of revelation is an act of God, and it should be cherished. And boy, I sure do cherish this one. But do you know what the blinders on the age of grace is? The coming kingdom. We're blind to it. The people who are in this room. This room is not packed out. You want to see packed out? Go to some mega church down the road somewhere. You're going to find out what packed out looks like. There are very few people who have the revelation that we have been given. And it is a great trust that God has invested in us. And so therefore, don't look lightly upon this conference. Also, don't look to your left and right and say, well, I see a lot of seats empty here. There's not a whole lot of people here. Not a whole lot of people have been given this revelation. We are the fortunate ones in one way, unfortunate in another, but we are the fortunate ones because God has given us this great responsibility, and it's a great stewardship that he's entrusted to you. And we still go around telling people about it in the hopes that God will take the blinders off of their eyes and they see the same things that we do. And so he says, you're going to be baptized not many days hence by the Holy Ghost. When they therefore come together, will you restore the, the kingdom at this time to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Guess what? That's the outline of the book. You want to outline the book of the Exodus or the Apostles, the Acts of the Apostles? Verse number eight is it. It starts in Jerusalem. <laughs> it spreads out to Judea, then to Samaria, and then Paul takes it to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. There's your outline for the book of Acts, okay? Now turn back with me to the book of Joshua. There's some things that are going to take place before the conquest begins. One of the major things that take place is the parting, or not the parting, but the heaping is, the, is probably the better term, the heaping of the Jordan River. And there are four times in Old Testament Scripture where waters have been parted. One was under Moses. 
Moses stood before the Red Sea and God drove a strong wind in the Red Sea overnight and the Red Sea parted and the children of Israel walked across on dry land. Two is Joshua, the counterpart to Moses. Moses, Joshua. Joshua leads them in. The Jordan River goes up on a heap. I would have loved to have been there to see that. You know how Hollywood puts together movies. I can't wait till God opens up the film projector room up in heaven and shows us some of these things that happened because I, for one, would love to see this, okay? I just would love to see this. It's like so theatrical. And I would enjoy it. And But also, there are two other people who, under the power of God, parted water. And they are Elijah, because if you'll remember, he took the opposite route of the conquest to go out. He passed right by Ai. He passed right, right through Jericho. And when he crossed over into the plain, he was received up into heaven alive after he had parted the Jordan River with God's help by slapping his mantle into, into the water was received up into heaven around the same place where Moses was buried. Then, poor old Elisha, who said, who was told, but if you can stay with your master the whole time, ooh, here's that cling to message again. Wherever your master goes, if you're found with him, if you got your eye on him, when it's time, then guess what? When the metal falls, it's yours. And not only that, but I'm going to give you a double portion of it. And so Elijah's caught up into heaven alive. He takes the man, or Elijah's caught up into heaven alive. And by the way, why were they seen with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration? Because they complete the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both of them came to do work for the law's sake. Moses was the law giver. Elijah was trying his best to restore the children of Israel back to the law again. He went to a desert place somewhere near Mount Sinai, fasted for 40 days and nights just like Moses did, and was asking about God. Asking God, you know, I'm jealous for you, Lord. Your people have turned their back on the law. They're doing whatever they want to. They're worshiping Baal. And I'm the only person left alive who's doing the right thing. How many of you remember his cry? And God said, well, you poor man. Do you think? I don't have anybody serving me. There's 5,000 people in this land who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. But nonetheless, I want you to do th th two, a couple things. I want you to go anoint Elisha to be the person who takes your place when you're gone. I want you to anoint Haziel too because guess what? He's going to do some part of my job that I need to do. And by the way, Haziel, the king of Syria's job was going to be to destroy Israelites who were walking out of the way. And then there was also Jehu who I want to preach about one day all by myself because my wife, she's not here, I can talk about her, okay? My wife drives like Jehu, okay? I am afraid when I get in the car with her. I'm praying from the time I get in the front seat till the time we arrive. I'm like, honey, please, please stop driving like Jehu. I just don't have the heart for it. You know, that righteous king from Israel who hopped on a chariot, when he got down, I bet he aged about 15 years and his hair had turned white over one chariot ride. 
Come and see my zeal for the Lord. I love that. I love Jehu. He's one of the more colorful figures in, in Scripture, in all of Scripture. I just love him. Yeah, there was me chasing a rabbit because I don't have notes. <clears throat> but anyway, I like chasing rabbits. They, they get you away from the dog. All right, so what's going to happen now, these four men, and by the way, Elisha wrapped up the metal, and he struck the waters, and he walked back through in the same path. He went through Jericho first, through Ai, so forth, so on. So the path of the conquest, the path of the conquest that you're about to look at here in just a minute. Elisha went the reverse direction through the conquest while Elijah came back in through the conquest, which lets you know that Elisha and the apostles of Jesus Christ share some things together. What happened in, in the Acts of the Apostles? Well, let's look at it. There in chapter number 2. Chapter number 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem. It's just not some random language that nobody knows, y'all. If you've read your scripture and you understand exactly what's going on, I'm going to show you the main plan here in just a second. As the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, not just ordinary common people. These were people who were devout. Why were they in Jerusalem right now? They were celebrating Pentecost. They came from nations all around about and they had come to Jerusalem to gather there because they were serious about keeping the commands of God. And they're all there. Now when it, this was noised abroad, it says, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews devout men out of every nation under heaven. Every known civilization at the time had Jews who were there. And by the way, how did they get to all these other places? The diaspora. When they were separated, when the Assyrians took them, when Nebuchadnezzar took some of them, all of a sudden the Jews had been intermingled among all the nations through this one act. And, then, and that continued on even unto the world uh, later on. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They, they knew different languages, and so they're listening, and these apostles are speaking, and they're speaking in their language, or they're hearing it as their language. Maybe they were saying it in their language, and, and then the Holy Spirit was actually translating it into the language that they uh, would understand. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are these not which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Here you go. There's a list. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in parts of Libya around Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Greeks and Arabians. 
we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Guess who steps up to preach the sermon? You remember that? If you think God's done with you because you might have done something that was terrible, I want you to recall how Peter might have felt when he betrayed the Lord. When he cussed in front of the soldiers. Hello. I want you to see at that moment in that man's life, he thought it was over, that there was nothing left. And that was the way that Satan could sift him as wheat. Jesus warned him in advance. Hey, buddy, Satan wants to, wants to sift you as wheat. But I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. It's good to see Peter made it out the other side. He denied the Lord three times, but the Lord Jesus Christ made him confess him three times in love. How many of you remember that? But it was Peter who stood up and he spoke the first message to this Israelite crowd these proselytes from out from under every nation under the sun. Verse number 41 of chapter 2 says, When they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In the apostles' doctrine. In fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. It was a marvelous age. There were supernatural things going on. Meanwhile, back in the book of Joshua, and I want you to understand the difference between life and death in these passages of scriptures. The conquest of Joshua is to go in and kill everybody that belonged there. The conquest for these people who are believers were to go out and evangelize the world so that they might have life. There's a juxtaposition going on between death and life here. Please understand what's going on. Joshua was supposed to go or go in and God made it very clear. Now when, Jer when Jericho falls, I want every inhabitant in it dead. I don't care. I want every beast in it dead. I don't want anything that has breath in it to live. I want it all to die. The call to evangelize in the book of Acts, we go and preach the gospel to every creature according to what the, the, uh, the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ was, which he gave them in Matthew and Mark and Luke and a little bit in John. And so... I do want you to understand that the land of Canaan is for a type, and I want to take a little time, and the book of Acts is also a type. If you're trying to live out the book of Acts in your life, first of all, understand you are not an apostle. You are not an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, and therefore, the miraculous things that happened in those days are not happening now. God's miracles still continue on, but it's in a different tone, a different shade, a different way. It doesn't manifest itself in the gaudy way it did in the book of Acts. Because God knew the Jews. What do the Jews require? A sign. 
If you can't do some miracle, if you can't show us the living God is in you, you are not worth my time and I will not listen to you. That was their, that was their attitude. And so these apostles, if they didn't have signs, they wouldn't be believed. If they just went armed with just the word of God, and by the way, I want you also to see how Jesus' commission to reach as many Jews as he could. How many of you knew that? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So in one, at least one aspect, Jesus knows what failure feels like. The Jews didn't believe him. But he also told them, look, it's because there's blinders on your eyes. God has put blinders on your eyes unless you see, unless you hear, unless you be converted and be healed. Those are his words. Those are actually words in the Old Covenant. But this is what it's all about. Right here in the book of Joshua, they're supposed to go in and they're supposed to wipe everybody out and they're supposed to take possession of the land. In a dual meaning, this is written for the sons of God, the mature sons of God, or the would-be mature sons of God. If you want a piece of real estate in God's economy, you need to get up and fight for it. You need to get up and fight for it. There's an enemy in the land, and we are combating the enemy every day of our life. Jesus is up at the right hand of God. The light of the world is here now in every one of us. You are the light of the world. You can't get depressed at the news. I don't know how many people. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand if you watch Fox News. You probably need to stop that. Okay? Because it gets agitating. And God forbid you watch one of the other channels. You know? Just got to be careful with that news. Because the news will put you in a bad place. And they all have bad news. I was at school... And the kids were talking to me. Oh, the end of the world is going to, about to come. And I said, uh, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't get the memo. What did you say? The end of the world's about to come? Yeah, some, something, something, something's going to happen. And then I said, I started laughing. And they said, Mr. Dillon, why are you laughing? I said, the end of the world's not here yet. Well, how do you know that? I said, Jesus hadn't ruled and reigned for a thousand years. That's how I know that. This world doesn't get destroyed until after Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. Five Christians piped up and started talking to everybody else right then and there. And all of a sudden, a secular classroom, yes, I teach at Georgia College, early college, which is a liberal arts college. And my kids took off with it. The next thing you know, the act of evangelization was taking place in my classroom, and I didn't have to say anything else. I, just, I laughed. I said, the end of the world's not here yet. How do you know that, Mr. Dillon? Because Jesus hasn't ruled and reigned for a thousand years on this physical earth, and it's not going to be destroyed until the end of that. Oh, you ought to see him. They got happy. They were happy. You mean the world's not going to be... I said, stop watching CNN. <laughs> that was for free. <laughs> anyway, this is all about conquest. The first big conquest, of course, was going to be Jericho. And you see bliss in the midst of it. And the evangelization thread actually began when you see the salvation of Rahab the harlot. Rahab receives the spies in peace and says, look, 
You don't know it, but we are all over here shaking in our boots. We saw the Jordan River stand up on a heap. We heard what happened to you in Egypt and how God delivered you. And all these men in this city are dead afraid of you because they know the power of God was with, with you. And oh, by the way, if the power of God is with you and I help protect you, will you make sure my family doesn't die? Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because she believed by faith. So it wasn't all death and gloom. And so what happens on that first time? Well, the first thing before they could ever go in is many of them were not circumcised. I don't have to go back and retell you all about that, but the circumcision has a spiritual meaning, but a lot of the male people had not been circumcised since they left Egypt because they left in a hurry and they still had children to tend to, but while they were on their journeys, they were busy. And they couldn't do that. And so God said, you know, Joshua, I want you to have them all circumcised right now because that's part of my covenant. You can't become a conqueror unless you are circumcised. And what is circumcision? Circumcision is cutting off a little bit of flesh to reveal a hidden part. Now, if you're, if you're blushing, you're totally missing what I'm saying here. Okay? God gave circumcision as an understanding to us in a spiritual context. Circumcision is when you cut the piece of flesh that means the most to you in your life away. And God allows a hidden part of yourself to be manifested and made known to the rest of the world. You say you want power with God? Circumcise your heart. You want power with God? You want... Uh, and by the way, the power is in weakness. I don't have time to get into all that. It's, it's really in weakness. But understand that if you ever want God to use you in any mighty way, in any mighty way, cut the foreskin of your heart off. That thing that you cherish the most, the thing that keeps you away from God the most, those things that keep you away from, from Him, that, that consumes your time. We're commanded to lay aside all the weights and the sin. Understand that weights aren't sin. I know about the weights because my dad used to put five-pound weights on both my legs when I was young and make me run. I said, Pappy, I'm not going to go anywhere. He said, that's not the point. Run. And so I start running. Oh, man, it's really hard. I can't hardly run these clunky things. I had no coordination, couldn't do anything with them. But buddy, when you took them off, you were fleet of foot, just like a deer. It was amazing. A lot of us are trying to run a marathon with five pound weights on each ankle. And you can't do that. You gotta be liberated from the flesh. You have to make sure. And by the way, you have three enemies that you should be aware of. The world, which is already being conquered in Jesus' eyes through you, and by the way, is conquered Whenever the children of Israel pass through the Red Sea, <laughs> these people that the Egyptians whom thou seest today, thou shalt see no more. Out of sight, out of mind. God has already given you victory over the world. But God has not yet given you victory over the flesh and the devil. And I'm going to tell you what, those are the three tiers. First, be saved, be baptized. You're free from the world. You're no longer part of the world. 
You go back to the prayer that was talked about this morning in John chapter 17, and you understand that God has already said, Ye are not of the world. You no longer belong to it. You might want to try to go back and reconform to it. That would be like going to the Dead Sea, pulling up a dead Egyptian, sitting him on the bike and saying, Please take me back to Egypt and let me be back there again. It's futile and it's fruitless. There's no way you can do that. There's no world to go back to. They don't like you anyway. The second natural enemy is the flesh. And the flesh has to do with you. There are things that you adhere to. There are things that you hold to. There are activities you like to do that are flat out sin and out of conjunction with what God wants with your life. And he wants you to take some scissors or a scalpel and he wants you to cut that off and throw it. So that the hidden part that God has put in you can be manifested to the world. The last enemy, if you succeed in cutting off your flesh, look out. The next adversary you have to face is the devil because once you get spiritual, once you start trying to walk with the Lord, once you're trying to do everything you can to serve him, you better look for an appearance from him because he's coming. First, he's going to try to pull you out of the way with this and that. But if that don't work, look toward the eminence of dismemberment, harm, or death. Because he will ask God the Father permission to play with you just like he did you. A lot of us will never make it to stage three. We're too busy with stage two. And if you'll accept that that's the children of Israel walking around in the desert for 40, for 40 years, systematically being killed off because they never got shed of the flesh. Not a single one, not, a lot, not just, just two. Statistically, that's disarming. I mean, two out of the whole entire million or more people who were coming out of there, only two made it to the promised land. Only two. But that's the old covenant way. The new covenant way is much different. There are many more who can contend. There are many more who can buy. All right, let's get to our next point. After they were circumcised, then and only then were they to do it. And God said, look, I'm going to be with you, Joshua. And after this, after this uh, Jericho conquest, nobody's going to have any question about whether or not I'm with you. It's going to solidify your position. And so they go to Jericho. They get the ark of God out front. They stay behind a good little ways. And they walk. Some people have trumpets. They walk around the city one day, blow the horn, go back to their tent. Day two. Same deal. Go back to their tent. Day three. Same thing. Blow the horns. Go back. And at first, you know, if the, if the men of Jericho are afraid, it's like, what are they doing? This is the strangest bad tactic I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Going to march around the city and blow trumpets. Wow. Wow. Fourth day. Fifth day. Sixth day. On the seventh day, if they didn't know, they were about to know. And by the way, how would you like to do that? Okay, before you go fight the war today, I want you to go and run 15 laps around that, that, that mile stadium that you have up there. I want you to go ahead and, and run. They only had to do it 
How many times? Seven times they had to march around that city. Well, if I'm a soldier and I got to march around the city seven times, I'm tired. Are you not tired? Because, buddy, when the walls come down, the people are coming out. That was because God was showing them their weakness and helping them understand the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. And so when they blew the trumpet after they marched around the city seven times, down fell, fell the walls, except for one portion. I'll get to that in a minute. And then they came in and they wiped out the enemy. They destroyed everyone. They came back. And while the war was going on at that time, Moses said, hey, you boys that made a promise to Rahab, I want you to go take care of that family. The Bible says that her house was built on the wall. Guess what portion of the wall did not fall? Hers. Her and her family were saved and brought into the, to the, to the tribe of Israel and they stayed there from that moment and forever. Miraculous. Miraculous. I want to see the miraculous. How would, you like to, how would you like to see the Lord do that? We don't see miracles after that nature. The miracles that God presents with us, as you'll see when I get to the book of Judges tomorrow, are supernatural in a much different way. In a much different way. Now, after that conquest, they attempted to go up against Ai. When they went up against Ai, they lost their boots that day. Because there was sin in the camp. A man by the name of Achan, despite the direct instruction from Joshua to make them all understand, look, you're not to take anything from this. And all the silver and the gold belong to God. Every last bit of it. It goes into the treasury of the Lord. Nobody take anything that goes into the treasury of the Lord. He, he told them in advance. It's written right there in the Word. But Achan did anyway. He said, look, I coveted them and I took them. I took some silver and I, and I, uh, and I, took, I, I took some goodly Babylonish garments. And they're in my tent. I hid them in my tent. And so what they did after they found out that was the truth is they took him and his family out to the valley of Achor. And they stoned them all to death. Achan is responsible for the death of his entire family. And everything they owned was destroyed and set on fire. You say, nothing like that ever happened in the New Testament, did it? Go back to the book of Acts. I'll show you its parallel companion. Some of you know before I even start. Yell it out if you know it. Real loud. What? Ananias and Sapphira. My fingers aren't working very good. When you get there, somebody tell me. <laughs> Chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Because back then, and by the way, who led, who led the way in selling things and giving? It was Barnabas. 
I love Barnabas. Barnabas is one of my favorite characters. He reminds me of Jonathan in the Old Covenant. I see a lot of similarities between the two of them. Okay? And Barnabas has my heart. My heart is, I don't want anybody out of the race. If I see somebody out of the race, I quit running my own race just to help them get back in the race. And by the way, the Christian race is the only race where that's permissible and you can still win. You can stop the race. I remember watching the Olympics and somebody fell and somebody stopped dead and turned around and put them on their put, put one arm around their shoulders and helped them make it to the finish line. How many of you remember that? It's the Christian race is the only race where that's permissible and you still win a prize. I love it. But Peter said, and Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. You didn't want to live in this supernatural age if you had sin in your life. Because people who had sin in their lives in both the book of Joshua and the book of Acts ended up having problems. Mostly dead. Now, after this in the book of Joshua, so I'll flip back to Joshua, completely lost my, my place in the book of Acts, but I'll get back to it in a minute. In the book of Joshua, next comes after Ai is finally destroyed. There are five kings who get together and say, well, we're going to get to jump on you, Israel. You're not coming to our city one at a time and blowing little trumpets and knocking our walls down. We're going to get five kings together and we are coming to get you. And they all marched up against them and lost. The five kings ended up hiding in a cave. And after they were finished with the battle, uh, Joshua stopped and said, hey, put some rocks over top of that cave and we'll deal with that when we get back. They were still pursuing enemies. I think that was the time when God at, or Joshua asked for the sun to stand still and, and the moon to stand still, and it did for a 24-hour period of time. I think that was the place where that actually happened so that they could finally make that conquest. But an amazing thing happened after that destruction, after they destroyed the five kings. They went to each and every one of the cities that came out and attacked them. Those five cities, they took them on one at a time. They went in, they destroyed women, they destroyed children, they destroyed everything. They marched out against them. And then another four or five kings decided they wanted to do the same thing. They came out against Joshua all at once. They were all destroyed down the ground. And then he went to each one of those cities and he destroyed every single living inhabitant there. And that to me, my friends, is shades of Armageddon because the conquest, what happens right before the big conquest begins, you know, all the massive armies of the world have gone up against Jerusalem. They have ransacked the northern part of Jerusalem, all, uh, northern side of Israel, all the way down to Jerusalem. And that's when Jesus' foot touches down on the Mount of Olives and creates that huge valley from which they're going to reign. God puts a difference between the enemy and the other side that is still untainted and not destroyed. And then what happens from there? Every last inhabitant that marched against Jerusalem 
will be destroyed. Not a single one will remain. Yes. You can't go out against Israel and do that because it's part of the Abrahamic covenant. If you try to do anything to hurt them, you will be hurt back. And that's the way that God is because God has put his love and protection on that nation and he means to keep it there. And so we ought not have anything about that. Well, what about the conquest of the book of Acts? I see three. I love this. See, in the book of Joshua, they're only disputing the land of Israel, the land of God, God's own prized possession in this world. The only place where he chose to put his name there, that belongs to that belongs to him and him alone and to the people who, who he wishes to give it to. But later on in this passage of Scripture, God's trademark signature on life, as, as I said, Joshua pertains to death, while the book of Acts pertains to life. You're going to see a couple of things that happen. I don't know if you've ever made this connection, but we'll see if you have. Okay? Peter preaches a second message altogether after... Peter's first two messages, there are 8,000 souls who have added themselves to the church. That's a pretty good number to start with, right? By the way, what do you think is happening to all these proselytes who are going back to their nation? They are about to be evangelized. Because that's exactly the message they're going to... Look, there's a coming king. And he has an age in which you can rule and reign. And if you want to be a part of this rule and reign, then you better, you better understand and believe that Jesus the Christ is the Son of God that he died and was buried again the third day and he wants you to live a life. And so that was the apostles' doctrine. But toward the latter part of chapter 8 in the book of Acts, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure, and had come to, to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Esaias the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. If God has ever spoken to your heart to go and talk to someone, I don't know why you didn't. But maybe from now on when he asks you to go, go. And I'm ashamed to say that that happened in my life. There was a time when God spoke to me. But you better believe I learned my lesson. The next time God told me to speak to someone, it actually saved a man's life. Yeah. And that's not my credit. That was the Holy Spirit. All that man needed was a friend. In my meeting him, my talking to him in obedience to the Holy Spirit allowed him to live. And he was a believer. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you forget about your fear. Remember, fear belongs to who? Preached about him for two nights. Fear belongs to who? Jacob. Not Israel. There's no fear in you. What did he tell Joshua? Be strong. Be courageous. Be brave. Which is the opposite of being afraid. You be brave from now on. You have a race to run. And you have the Lord to please. And there are lives you could be saved as a result of our obedience to the Lord. 
So he's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I accept something should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture was Isaiah 53. And he was talking about he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shear, so he opened not his mouth. In his, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And he said, he said, I don't know who this is talking about. Is this talking about the uh, prophet? Who who's the speak of the prophet? This. Is he talking about himself or some other man? And then Philip opened up his mouth and began the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded that the chariot sit to stand still. And they went down to the water, and both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. How many historians are in the room? Can you tell me whether or not there was a great revival in Ethiopia at this time? God was trying to choose people who would carry them, his message to the ends of the world and tell everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, what family from Noah does the Ethiopians belong to? He had three sons. You have a one-third chance in getting it right. That's right, Ham. Chapter 9. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. You know this story. You know it very well. He gets called down in the middle of the road and told, look, i got a job for you to do. And I'm going to tell you what, if there was never ever a man who knew what suffering was, it was the Apostle Paul and Saul. How many of you ever compared Saul in the Old Covenant with Saul in the New Covenant? They're both from the tribe of Benjamin. One started out in power and ended up losing it. The other one started out as a as a Pharisee killing people and ended up being one of the greatest apostles that God ever had. Because Benjamin's the last son. I just spoke a great mystery. But anyway, he ends up, hey look, he's so powerful with what he does, they almost kill him in Damascus. They almost kill him right there on the spot. Takes him to the disciples. They're scared to death of him. Send that man back to his house. We don't want to have anything to do with this man. By the way, who was the one that brought him back to where they were first called Christians? Who? That's right. Barnabas. His name's done come up twice. Barnabas said, Brother Saul, Brother Paul, I want you to come with me. Let's go back. And guess what? God separated Paul and Barnabas for their first missionary tour together. And then after this, guess who's next? And by the way, what tribe did he belong to? What, what son did he belong to from Noah? That would be Shem. I know you're all afraid to answer. You know, I'm not going to get it right. This is not final jeopardy, is it? I'm, not, I'm about to risk all my money on this and get in trouble. No, that, that, was, that was from the tribe of Shem. In chapter 10, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band, called the Italian band. 
You know how the story goes. What happens at the end of the story? The man and his whole entire family end up getting to be in the family of God. And so what tribe does he hail from? The only remaining tribe that we haven't mentioned yet. All three sons of Noah are conquered by God through evangelization. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's pretty remarkable. So if there's anything from tonight's message, and by the way, there are more. I could do this all night, but I don't want to bore you. It's about time for me to quit. I don't want to bore you. And so therefore, you try to find someone your own, and when you see me, Brother Dylan, I found one. I I like it. I might not have it in my archive. You go ahead and let me know so that I can write it down in my archive because it is not the alone um, um, juxtapositions that you can see in this passage of Scripture. So... Amen. Well, I, I hope this has blessed your heart in some way. And uh, it has actually helped you understand that God is dividing ages here, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, um, through uh, Israel being freed. And that's Jesus' ministry. And now we get to see the conquest through the eyes of, of Joshua in the book of Acts. And tomorrow it's going to be about judges and the present age in which we now live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and your many wonderful blessings. Lord, I thank you for these good, kind folk who have listened to me right along now for a long time. I pray that something might make some difference and, and actually help in, the, in Bible studies that are, that are here today. Lord, great is your word. Great is the consolidation of your word. Impermeable it is, though mankind would say elsewise. Lord, what a great book you've put together. I pray that we might be lived by every word that you've written in it. Help us to do the very best that we can by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to run our race with patience. And Lord, will not forget to give you praise, honor, and glory for all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.